The following lecture was delivered at the 14th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Washington, D.C., a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Mrs. Linda Fishman now presents her lecture, Repairing Rainbows. I wanted to first start by saying that thank you so much for coming. I hope that my story and some of the messages that I would like to deliver this afternoon will have an impact in a positive way. I'm going to start by just telling you, if you've already, um, as you've already probably read, when I was 13 years old, my mother and two younger sisters were killed in a plane crash. So I was left as the only child with my father, who was clearly destroyed after this horrible tragedy. But I would like to first fast forward to now and tell you a little bit about who I am and um, you know, start with that part, and then I will go back and, and talk a little bit about how the tragedy impacted my life and some of the choices that I made moving forward from, from being hit with such a horrible tragedy. And the reason that I do tell my story is because every single person as a human experiences some sort of loss in their life. And it doesn't always have to be the loss of a loved one or loved ones. It could be the loss of health. It could be loss of a relationship, loss of a job. All kinds of losses um, are part of our human experience. And I do believe that the way we deal with loss is very unique and we do have choices. And I hope that I can share some of the choices that I made with you and hopefully inspire people who are going through any kind of loss to look at what the options are for them. So fast forward to now, I have been married to a wonderful man for over 40 years. We have three children, two grandchildren. I've had an amazing career as a summer camp director in Toronto for over 25 years. I also, thank you, I also taught at a college um, in the social work program. I have a private practice where I do therapy with the most wonderful people, and I'm really proud to have a thriving practice. And I do inspirational speaking. I wrote a book called Repairing Rainbows. I feel incredibly blessed and lucky. And I'm really, I spend a lot of time counting my blessings. And my husband as well counts his blessings. And I'll tell you a little bit about his life. So that's where I am now. And I will go back now and tell you a little bit about what I was faced with and some of the choices that I made. So as I said, when I was 13 years old, um, my whole family was going to head to California for our cousin's bar mitzvah. It was the first bar mitzvah in the family, and everybody was coming from Montreal, New York, all over, so that we could celebrate together. I went the week before because I was the type of 13-year-old who liked to clean and organize, and so I wanted to go with my maternal grandparents and set up the apartment we were going to live in for the month. And then my mother and two sisters were coming the week later, and my father was coming the week after that. So it was in July, and we were woken up in the morning at about 5 a.m. California time by a phone call telling us that the plane that my mother and two sisters were on had crashed. Nobody knew if there were any survivors, but that was a phone call that we received. So we immediately headed to the airport. 
my grandparents, my aunt and me, and um, flew back to Montreal. And of course, as soon as we landed in Montreal, we knew that there actually were no survivors and life as I had known it was over. And I was forced to deal with, with a tragedy that in the 1970s was dealt with so incredibly differently than it would be nowadays. There was no social media, there was no outpouring of support from the community or from anyone. It was really a very alone feeling to be dealing with this type of tragedy because back in the 1970s, people didn't know how to deal with tragedy and they felt that the best way to deal with it would be to just let the people do what they need to do for the first year and then they'll be okay. And the, the less you talk about the people who died, get the pictures out of the way, get their personal things out of the way, the better it will be for the family members, which we now know the opposite is actually true. So my father and I, for that very first year, really did have to try to put on this courageous face and, you know, help people feel comfortable around us because people were so uncomfortable around us not knowing how to deal with us. And that is the way it was done with the best of intentions. Um, the memories that I have from the first, from the beginning, uh, from the time that we got back to Montreal, and just to give you a couple of, of examples, we couldn't have funerals because they couldn't identify bodies, so we couldn't sit Shiva because we didn't have any bodies to bury. And I remember having multiple rabbis sitting in the living room in our house debating whether or not we can actually start sitting Shiva because we didn't have a funeral yet. And these are the kinds of things that I was listening to, trying to figure out, you know, what meaning there was in all of it. Anyways, um, within a few days, they did start to identify body parts. And so we were able to have funerals and sit Shiva. And then the minute that the Shiva was over, people did what they did back then. And that was emptied all of their stuff out of the house, took the pictures away, and we were just forced to carry on as if they had never existed. So I looked at my father who was so broken and so devastated that I had no idea how he was ever going to pick himself up again. And I made a couple of tough choices. And those choices were that I am going to carry on and I'm going to live a meaningful life as hard as it was. Um, but that was the choice that, that I felt was important for me to do. And, you know, my father made some different choices, not because he wanted to live this life in such a devastated state, but he had no idea how to make the choices that I was making about how to move forward. He didn't have the support or the guidance that helped him. And, you know, totally understandably, he was just broken until the day that he was diagnosed with cancer, succumbed to it immediately a few years later and, and died. So, you know, we did make some very different choices, but what, what I would like to really emphasize is that I used those first 13 years of my life as the most incredible foundation for making choices about how to move forward. So when I explain those first 13 years, I think you'll understand why it was my choice to live a meaningful life and to move forward in a really meaningful and positive way. I grew up in a family where we spent all of our time, aside from school and you know, family things, helping other people. We did tons of volunteer work. My family was always involved in helping others, reaching out to others. I really do believe that my parents instilled in me and in my sisters 
incredible core Jewish values about how important it is to do our share in making a difference in the lives of other people, reaching out, helping other people. And that overall message and the actions that I saw throughout those first 13 years served me incredibly well in, in making the choice to move forward in a way that life would feel meaningful. So I started to volunteer at um, hospitals where I could make children who were in the hospital smile. I could make a difference in their lives. I was 13, 14, 15, and I was volunteering at nursing homes and hospitals because it gave me a bit of a break from my own problems. And it also continued in the way I had been raised, which was knowing that no matter what's going on in your own life, you have to make time for other people and, and go out and make a difference, which is, I believe, an incredible value and something that I try to teach people all the time because it really does feel good when you know that you're helping other people and that you're not always putting yourself first. Nothing makes me more upset when people say, well, it's not my problem. I'm not going to get involved. And, and I do believe that goes against our, our values as Jewish people. So that's how I got through the first few years, uh, keeping myself super busy with school and fundraising activities and volunteer work. And then when I was 17 years old, I met my Bashert, I met my husband, and when I heard his story, I could not believe how we had so many things in common. My husband, um, when he was seven months old and his brother was four years old, their dad came home and found their 32-year-old mother dead on the floor with two young children. And, you know, that meant that my father-in-law was left with these two young boys. She had died of a heart attack. And he was left with two young boys to raise on his own. And to make things even more challenging for him, my brother-in-law, my husband's brother, who was about four years older than him, was developmentally delayed. So his dad was dealing with single parenthood with a child who had developmental delays. And he did the most remarkable job with those two boys on his own in the times where helping children with special needs was not on anyone's priority list. In fact, he dealt with a lot of issues with the schools and with bullying that nowadays wouldn't be tolerated. But nevertheless, he handled things really well. And when my husband was 17, his brother was 21, they were outside washing the car with their dad and their dad dropped dead of a heart attack right in front of them. And that was in April. My husband and I met in October, just a few months after his father had died. And he had been left as an orphan, not only as an orphan, but responsible for his brother, who at 21 was more like a six-year-old. But the most important part of that whole connection was that neither one of us wanted to throw each other a pity party. It was actually quite the opposite. We were both determined that we were going to make good decisions about how to move forward. We wanted to go to university. We wanted to make a difference in the world. And we had to do some pretty amazing things in order to get through university because neither one of us had the money. Um, my husband got a job at General Motors weekends and summers welding cars, and there was no health and safety rules back then. So he would come back burned with you know, burn marks all over him. He was 19 years old and making amazing money so that he could pay for school, but there was a price to be paid for that kind of job. And he was also pumping gas at a gas station in the evenings. Um, but he needed to do that in order to pay for school. And I was waiting tables at a restaurant and washing hair at a hair salon. 
And to this day, I still have an aversion to um, final net. I don't know if anybody ever remembers that <laughs> sticky stuff, but I used to have to wash it out of people's hair after a week or two of them not washing their hair. But I got amazing tips, and we would both come home and count our money and pay our tuition and pay our living expenses so that we could go to university. And um, I got my master's in social work, and my husband got his accounting degree. And as I told you at the beginning, I've had a really amazing career, not only as a social worker, but as a summer camp director in Toronto. And my husband has been the CEO of three pharmaceutical companies. He's done incredibly well, come a long way from, thank you, <laughs> from welding cars. And, um, you know, together what we've done is we've come up, and, and we did do this together, aside from the fact that he tried to help me write the book, which was in itself an interesting experience because he's got a business mind, and he would write a chapter, and he said, okay, I wrote a chapter for the book, and I would read it and go, put that in your business book, because that doesn't fit in my book at all. But we did come up with what we call our eight happiness-inducing choices, and I would really love to share those eight choices with you, because I think they have made a difference in our lives, and hopefully if they can you know, in any way impact the choices that people are making when faced with any kind of loss, then, you know, then I'm speaking for a good reason. So they're not in any particular order, so I'm just going to read them. Um, I always like to start with have faith and patience. I think that, and certainly, you know, we're hearing that here, um, how important it is to keep your faith and to trust that no matter what you are faced with, that somehow you will get through it with the help of God and just hold on to your faith. And I mean, I could do hours and hours of discussion about that, but I'll just say have faith and have patience because not everything happens exactly when we want it to. And we have to just sometimes say to ourselves, just, you know, have faith and have patience. The next one is surround yourself with positive people. I am sure we all know people who love to complain and never have a solution for anything. Nothing is ever good enough. No one is ever good enough. All they do is whine and complain, and we just want to run away from them. And I do run away from them because I do, I do believe that it's much more productive to stay with people who are positive and optimistic and energetic and like to find solutions. And just, you know, positivity is very contagious, and so is negativity. So I do believe that if we're surrounded by positive people, we will feel more positive. And if we're surrounded by negative people, they're going to try to pull us down because misery loves company. So, and I know most people say, but what about if it's a relative and I don't really have a choice? Well, I sometimes, you know, when you really inject a lot of positivity into a situation, people can't help but start to join in and feel more positive and be persistent with your positivity. And I do think it will pay off. The next one is help others. As I mentioned, I do believe that helping others is the key to happiness and feeling like you are leading a meaningful and fulfilled life. And reaching out and helping other people, no matter what situation, you have no idea what a difference you can make in someone's life. You know, people talk about heroes and people, you know, police or firefighters who can talk someone off the ledge of a building. And that's amazing, but we don't have to be professional firefighters or police or even doctors to help people and to make a difference in their lives. The heroes in my life were the people who in those first few months and certainly, you know, at the very beginning, the people who were there for us, who who showed their kindness and support, the, the friends whose parents invited me for dinner so I wouldn't have to go home to that 
deathly silent home. Those were my heroes. And I do believe that small gestures can go such a long way. Um, so, you know, helping others, I think, is really critical. Expressing gratitude. I think it's, you know, it is something that we talk about a lot in Judaism, and that is count your blessings. And, you know, we say thank God a lot, and we should say thank God a lot, because we have to look. And sometimes when you're going through a rough time, you think you're going to be grasping at straws to try to find reasons to feel grateful. But I think it's really important to look for the reasons in your life that you feel grateful and reasons to count your blessings. And I do believe that goes a really long way. I'll tell you a little story. Um, when my children were young and I was feeling so cheated out of them not having grandparents, my husband had no parents and I had no parents. And I felt like my kids were really cheated out of something that for me was so important growing up. So I decided that I was going to solve this issue and find grandparents for my children. So I put an ad in the Canadian Jewish News for surrogate grandparents. And in theory, I still think it was a brilliant idea because I know there are people out there who don't have grandchildren or who didn't have grandchildren, and they would have loved to hang out with me and my kids. They could come for Friday night dinner. They could come for brunch on Sunday. I didn't want anything from them. I just wanted their presence. I, presence. I wanted them to be around and for my kids to be able to relate to that generation. But after about the third or fourth interview... Um, my kids turned to me in the car and said, this isn't one of your better ideas. We really can't keep interviewing these people. It's not working out. And I looked at them and my husband and I thought, okay, you know what? You're right. This wasn't one of my better ideas, but what it did was it gave me a different perspective. It forced me to look at what I do have and to count my blessings rather than always looking at what I'm missing. And I looked at the fact that my husband went along with this crazy idea I, my kids were so cute during the interviews. I have a lot to be grateful for. And yeah, they are missing out on having grandparents, but there's so much more that we do have. And I'm going to focus on that. And it was so liberating. And really, I do believe that no matter what we're faced with, if we can somehow find the gratitude in that darkness, it will help see the light. It will help you see the light. Um, stay busy. I really do believe that it's important when you're grieving to do the grief work and to focus on your sadness. And you have to go through that dark time in order to get through the other side. And I, as a therapist, will help people get through that darkness. Um, but I also believe that we need breaks from it. And I think it's important to stay busy and to do things that are meaningful and productive so that every day when you wake up, you have a reason to get out of bed and it feels like a meaningful reason. Because otherwise, you're, if you're just stuck in, in only grief and sadness and you're not busy enough, your mind can really take over and you can, be, you can get so overwhelmed with the sadness that you can't move forward at all. So I think staying busy with meaningful and productive things is really important. Um, spend time with animals. I know some people go, oh boy, no, no way, I don't like animals. Well, even if you don't like animals and you don't want to have a dog or three like I have, I think that we have a lot to learn from them. And what I'm talking about today, they intuitively understand, which is why I believe dogs only have to live 12, 15 years because they get it from the minute they're born and they get it every single day. They have patience. They are 
they love unconditionally, they forgive, they don't harp on things. They really do understand how to live life to the fullest every single day. And, you know, you just give them a small little treat and they are like eternally grateful. They are always feeling so blessed. So we do have a lot to learn from animals. And um, the next one is look ahead, don't look back. So again, I do believe that it's important to do the grief work, but I also think it's really important that you look at where you are and where you want to be. And, um, you know, every experience that we have comes with opportunities to learn and grow. Every experience, even negative experiences. We have to take all those experiences and use them as an opportunity to become better people, to become more insightful, more empathetic, more understanding, more compassionate. So take those lessons Look at where you are and where you want to go. And the best way to remind yourself to do that is to think about the lady. I have, I have a woman who lives in my car. I don't know if you have a woman or a man living in your GPS system. But I have this wonderful woman who, when I say to her, I want, I'm here and I want to go here, she tells me exactly how to get there. And when I turn right instead of left, she doesn't start yelling at me and say, I told you to turn left. Last week you turned left also. Why are you turning left? I told you to turn right. We don't get into any arguments. We don't harp on the past. She simply says recalculating. And I really think it's important that we recalculate in life and that we look at where we are and where we want to go. And we don't harp on the mistakes, the challenges, the difficulties, because you can't go back and, and do anything about the past except learn from it. So I do think that's a critical one. And last but not least, choose positive thoughts. You cannot live a positive life with a negative mind. So one of the things we get to do is we get to choose our thoughts. We get to choose how to look at situations. We get to choose how to think about them, how to respond to them. And if our first thought is negative or our first thought is immobilizing, we get to change that thought and switch it to a more positive thought, to something that works for us, something that feels good and feels right. And so um, I'll give you another example. When I first started speaking, right after my book came out, I spoke to a group of women. There was about 300 women in the audience. And one of the women in front and center was on her phone the whole time that I was speaking. It looked to me like she was texting the whole time. And I was so distracted by her that I couldn't concentrate on my talk because I thought, well, what is she texting and why is she here? And I was so distracted, I actually felt cheated out of giving the kind of talk I wanted to give. And then I realized after that, that I was never going to let that happen again because I get to choose my thoughts. So now whenever anyone is on their phone while I'm speaking, I think they're taking notes on what I'm saying, and I should probably talk a little slower because I don't want them to miss anything. Now, it may or may not be true, but it doesn't matter because for me, that's very, very motivating, and I get to choose my thoughts, and I don't even have to tell anybody what I'm thinking. So I do believe that we get to choose our thoughts, and we get to choose how to look at situations, and if putting rose-colored glasses on makes you feel better about a situation then I think you should do it. Because when we live, when we have positive thoughts, we are able to live a more positive life. So that's the eight happiness-inducing choices. Um, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning, I think that living a life based on our core Jewish values, which are based on kindness and compassion, repairing the world, doing what we can to help others, all of those are so critical. And I really do believe that that is what helped 
get me through all of my tough times and continues to get me through any challenges. And I hope that um, that can inspire and, and give you something to work from whenever you're faced with anything. And I just want to, before we go on with any questions, and I have a few things to tell you about the book, um, I just want to say that in Fiddler on the Roof, the most powerful song for me is where they sing to life, to life, l'chaim, 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 to life. Life has a way of confusing us blessing and bruising us. So drink L'chaim to life. And that really says it all, I think, because life is a balance of challenges and difficult times and tragedy and loss and wonderful things and reasons to count our blessings and feel good. And we have to find a way to still live and and drink L'chaim to life. So I just wanted to mention something about this book and... um, you know, I'm a true believer, and, you know, obviously my faith has helped that for whatever reason things happen, there are so many, so many lessons and so many things that we can take from those situations. And when I wrote the book, it was really difficult to write, obviously, to go back and, and relive this horrible time in my life and put it down on paper in a very raw way. But... Um, Ever since the book has come out, and it's been nine years already, I continue to receive the most amazing feedback from people going through any kind of loss to say they can relate to what I wrote, and it validates things for them. So um, a few months before the book was going to be published, I was trying to come up with a cover. And my son is very good at graphic design, and he was making me all these fantastic covers, and nothing felt right. What I really wanted on the cover was what is on the cover, which is a picture of the front page of the newspaper the day after the plane crash, which is my sister Wendy's doll. Um, It was one of the only things that was actually identifiable at the crash site. And it was on the front page of the paper the morning after. And obviously, I can't even begin to describe when we saw that paper what it was like to see this doll that she had carried around with her. She was um, almost nine years old, so it was something that we had seen for so long. Anyways, I really wanted to put this on the front of the book, but I didn't know how to get permission. I didn't want to be sued, so I kept going back to what my son was offering to do. Anyways, my husband told me that we were going to Mexico to, he was in the pharmaceutical business back then. People actually, pharmaceutical people got to go on trips, not anymore. And so he told me we're going to Mexico with some of the sales reps. And I said, okay, I'm going to bring the book with me. One last read. We're going to decide on the cover and, and the book's going to print. A couple of days before we're meant to go to Mexico, he tells me we're now going to Dominican Republic. We're going to Punta Cana because nobody wants to go to Mexico. There was something going on there and they were all afraid. Okay, wherever we're going. We check in at our hotel in Punta Cana and my husband is a workaholic and he admits he is and he needed access to the internet at all times because if he gets up at two o'clock in the morning, he might have to work. He needs the internet. So he said to them, can can you make sure I have internet access in my room. And they said, none of the rooms have internet access, but we can upgrade you to this section. And there's a business center right there and you can have the internet there, but we're going to give you a different bracelet so you can get into that, into that business center. Okay. He didn't, he he would never be upgraded to a different area, but he needed access to the business center. They said, the only thing is don't go to the private beach, even though you have the bracelet that's going to allow you in the private beach, please don't go to the private beach. Don't worry. The next day we went to the private beach. I thought, I got to see this private beach. We have the bracelets. Let's check out the private beach. 
it was nothing special. There was a little cord separating the private beach from the regular beach, but nevertheless, we felt like, wow, we're, you know, we're on the private beach. And this woman, I call her the beach yenta, says to me, what are you working on? She saw my manuscript and all my papers, and I told her, and she goes, stay right there. She goes and she brings this man over to me who identifies himself as a retired Air Canada pilot who saw the plane go down that day. In 40 years, I had never, ever met anyone who had seen it. I didn't really know anything about it other, other than what I had read in the newspaper. Anyways, he says he was three years older than me. He was 16 at the time, and every Sunday morning he would go and watch the planes take off and land from um, in Toronto. And he said he was watching. He saw the plane hit the ground, take off again on fire, and go and crash seven miles from the Toronto airport. He got in his car. He was the first person at the scene. My mouth was on the floor. I said, first of all, I'm supposed to be in Mexico. I'm in Punta Cana. I'm not supposed to be on this beach, and I'm on this beach now. Something was really working, working for me here. Anyway, I said to him, if you were the first person, and he started to tell me things. I said, no, don't tell me. I can't hear that. That's just way too hard for me to listen to. But I said, I showed him the original newspaper clipping. I said, do you have any idea how I can get permission from the photographer? Because if you were the first person there, you must have known there were photographers. Do you have any idea how I can get permission to use this on the cover of my book? He said, stay right here. He went and got his wife, who worked for the Toronto Star, and she connected me with the photographer who sold me the rights, yes, sold, but that's another story, the rights to use the picture. Right? Is that the most unbelievable? That really told me that this was a story that I had to tell. And, you know, everything lined up for me so that I could tell it and, and put the picture that meant the most to me on the cover. Yes, I have two grandsons. Thank God. Yep. Yeah. And my kids, thank God, have followed in our footsteps and um, are busy doing volunteer work. And, you know, my oldest daughter is the director of a camp that helps children who are grieving, which I'm so happy that they went down the same road of knowing how important it is to make a difference in the lives of other people and, you know, to do volunteer work and just not always to think about yourself and, and never to say that's not my problem because everyone's problem is our problem to help with. And it is nice to take a break from your own problems and, and reach out and make a difference in the lives of others. It's very rewarding. People usually figure that out after they've gone through something terrible. You know, you'll notice that when someone loses a loved one to cancer or whatever, all of a sudden they, they join that organization, they want to raise money, they want to do something. Sometimes it takes loss and tragedy for people to realize how important it is to step in and make a difference in the lives of others. And sometimes we just learn it on our own. The handout has something that I think is really quite incredible. Um, it's called What Will Matter? So maybe I can read that because I do think that it's pretty impactful. And one day I have to meet this Michael Josephson because I think his, if you Google him, he writes some pretty beautiful things. But ready or not, someday it will all come to an end. There will be no more sunrises, no minutes, hours, or days. All the things you collected, whether treasured or forgotten, will pass to someone else. Your wealth, fame, and temporal power will shrivel to irrelevance. 
It will not matter what you owned or what you were owed. Your grudges, resentments, frustrations, and jealousies will finally disappear. So too your hopes, ambitions, plans, and to-do lists will expire. The wins and losses that once seemed so important will fade away. It won't matter where you came from or what side of the tracks you lived on at the end. It won't matter whether you were beautiful or brilliant. Even your gender and skin color will be irrelevant. So what will matter? How will the value of your days be measured? What will matter is not what you bought, but what you built. Not what you got, but what you gave. What will matter is not your success, but your significance. What will matter is not what you learned, but what you taught. What will matter is every act of integrity, compassion, courage, or sacrifice that enriched, empowered, or encouraged others to emulate your example. What will matter is not your competence, but your character. What will matter is not how many people you knew, but how many will feel a lasting loss when you're gone. What will matter is not your memories, but the memories of those who loved you. What will matter is how long you will be remembered, by whom, and for what. Living a life that matters doesn't happen by accident. It's not a matter of circumstance, but of choice. So choose to live a life that matters. And I think that is just so beautiful. You know, some people ask me about my, my father did remarry, by the way. So um, I could tell you a little bit about how things evolved with that situation. He did remarry. He remarried a woman who was widowed and had two children of her own, older than me. And it was not a positive experience for me at all, unfortunately. Um, people, people say, well, you know, how could you even talk about her? She was so self-centered. She pulled your father even further away from you. The truth is she was an amazing teacher for me because she taught me about how to never behave with other people. And sometimes those bad guys are teachers. They are disguised as bad guys, but really she was an incredible teacher for me because the way she treated me was very self-serving. She wanted my father to spend his time with her and her children at the expense of me and my life. And she didn't have the compassion or empathy or concern that my own mother had had. It was really confusing for me as a 14-year-old to look at this woman and understand how she could operate the way she did. And I really do believe that my father, having endured so much loss, could not end that marriage because he just couldn't walk away from even more um, relationships. He just couldn't handle it. And she took care of him. She fed him. She clothed him. You know, he had a partner again. Um, he was never happy again. And I know that for a fact because I knew my father before the accident and I knew him after and he never, ever recovered. But he had someone to take care of him. And, you know, she was, she was a huge teacher. And when my husband talks about her, he's, he always gives this one example, which I think really says it all. When she, when she first met my husband, we were 17 years old. And her advice to me, her unsolicited advice to me was break up with him because, first of all, he's a nobody. He has no parents. He's not going to make anything of himself. And you're going to be stuck with his brother your whole life. So really, you need to end this now. And I will never forget those words. My husband certainly will never forget those words. And that, I have to tell you, 
was incredibly inspiring for my husband. Not that he needed her to say that he should become a somebody, but he could not believe that somebody would judge a 17-year-old who was burdened with so much and just automatically assume that he didn't have the tenacity and the courage and the everything that it takes to make something of himself. And he did, obviously. He was extremely determined. And with everything that he has on his plate and how busy he is with his career, he will never say no to anyone who needs help or encouragement. And believe me, people ask him all the time. They're trying to figure out what to do with their careers or they're trying to get help with a situation where he has some expertise and he never says no. And those were the kinds of lessons that we took from her and, you know, used those as opportunities to grow as better people. So, believe it or not, he died of swine flu. Um, It's got to be almost 10 years ago when swine flu was prevalent in in Canada. He didn't know. He thought he had a cold. He went to a walk-in clinic and they gave him an antibiotic, which was obviously insufficient. And he died. I'm sorry? My husband's brother. Yeah. He had a really difficult life, probably the most difficult life of anyone I've ever met because he he was an adult. He was he was a child trapped in an adult's body. He was an adult with so many limitations, no parents to to really help him and guide him. Um, He certainly didn't want to take guidance from his younger brother. He had a really hard time with all of the accomplishments that my husband had and he just couldn't you know it was uh, he had a really tough life but my kids absolutely adored him because he was like a six-year-old kid he was so he was so much fun they loved playing with him he let them do anything I remember my youngest daughter had a birthday party and all the kids colored with him with colored on him with permanent markers and he was okay with that <laughs> so you know he he loved our family and we loved him and it was tragic when he, when he died. My book came out in 2010, and all of a sudden I started getting invitations to speak to audiences. Um, so, yeah, like nine years already. But, I mean, it's not a full-time thing. I'm happy to share my story wherever I can because if the book and my story can help inspire people to make good choices about how to move forward, then it's... You know, it feels very meaningful. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.